All right. Good evening, everybody. Good to have you out. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to pick up where we left off last Tuesday night. So we finished down through verse 16. As you find that, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening that we're able to open up the Word of God once again. And Lord, we take this time and this opportunity seriously. We want to hear from you. We want to be taught. Lord, um, help us to, to see exactly what it is you intend for us to see tonight. And might you use this lesson tonight as a building block in all of our lives to make us into the ministers you want us to be. Thank you for sending your Son to pay the ransom so that we could go free. We ask all this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to put last week's um, outline for this chapter. Oop, let me not mess with that too, too much. So this was the outline for chapter 20. We got the 11th hour. We looked at that. I'm going to say just a couple of things about that parable before we move on. Uh, just some practical things. I think we've covered um, all, all the issues that arise from it, maybe misunderstandings and, and how it should be understood. And then uh, the end of Jesus's life, elevation of ministers, an eye-opening eye-opening experience. So that's what we're going to be covering tonight. So just in case you didn't have the outline, I'm just reminding you of that. And let me take this down and, and also remind you of this. The lessons to be learned from the first 16 verses. When we look at the laborers that were hired to go and work in God's vineyard, uh, number one, we learn from that parable, God will honor his word. If he agrees to pay you a certain amount, uh, then he will pay that amount. If he says, I'll just do you right, he will do what's right. God will honor his word. Uh, number two, don't compare yourself to other servants. That was a big mistake that was made in that parable. And then don't labor for the reward, but rather for the master. Now, the reason I point these lessons out again is because for the rest of the chapter, they're, they're actually going to play into what we talk about, what we look, uh, look at. Uh, especially this second, this second one, not comparing yourself to other servants. It's quite easy, I think, sometimes to get uh, a little discouraged because you, you look at your life, you look at, and then you compare it with men like John the Baptist or the Apostle John or John Wycliffe or John Patton or Jonathan Edwards or John Bunyan or <laughs> any, any other great man of God named John, because there's a lot of them. Um, you start to look at how God has used the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, John, and you start to think, there's just no chance for me to have any sort of position in the kingdom if those are the kind of people that God honors, right, with rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and this is the type of service that he expects. Well, my life does not, cannot, will never measure up to these other servants of God. And that, that there's a danger in that. It's one thing to find some motivation, right? To be provoked unto love and to good works by the service you see from other people. But let's not forget that God does not expect you to be John the Baptist or to be John Bunyan, John Patton, Wycliffe. He, he doesn't expect that of you. He expects you to do as much as you can with the opportunities and the grace that he's given you. That's it. 
you need to be okay with your own smallness, right? The book of Zechariah says, don't despise the day of small things. You look at what you're doing, you think, well, this isn't much, you know. I got started later in life or, you know, they, they've been, they did so much more. They had 11 hours of a head start on me. I got in last minute, 11th hour. I only have this little bit that I'm able to do. Well, then do as much as you can with that small opportunity, that window of time that you have. And what, what's amazing about the parable is that you find Jesus rewards that 11th hour servant just the same as he did those, those other servants. You say, how could I ever, that's just not right that I would ever be considered on the same level as some of these great saints of God from yesteryear. When you consider the criteria, Jesus is looking for faithfulness, right? Faithfulness. So be faithful with whatever God has called you to do. Take the time, the resources, the opportunities you have and make the most of it. It's not my job to be a famous American missionary that went to Africa and did outstanding things that the history books will never forget. If my name never gets repeated down here on this earth, I have one goal and that is to make my Savior smile. I'm here because He saved me and He he, out of mercy, said, you can go serve me over there. So that's all I'm going to do. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. Now, moving on, chapter 20 and verse 17, the, we, we get a, a few verses about the end of Jesus' life. It says, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them. Now, this is the third time within the span of about two, two three weeks that he has said this type of thing. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day, a third day he shall rise again. Uh, take your Bibles. Hold this spot, of course. Get Luke chapter 18. I, I'd like for you to see this with me. Now, Luke 18, verse 31. Luke 18, 31. This is the cross-reference for the passage with which we're now dealing. Luke 18 and verse 31. It says, Then he took them, I'm sorry, then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, spitted upon, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Now, here's, here's the verse I want you to see in this. And they understood none of these things. Wow. These men have been walking with him for three and a half years. And Jesus is saying everything the prophets wrote about is just about to happen. And it's still going over their heads. You know, our Bible school, we had a three-year plan. Now we're, we have a four-year curriculum. And maybe there's a few times in Bible school that you hear something taught and it just kind of goes over your head. And you think, I, okay, maybe next time around I'll get it. Now, there's a good chance that it's the teacher's fault and that I didn't explain it very, very well. But in the case of Christ, he's explaining it perfectly fine, obviously, but the disciples, they didn't understand. They, they had yet to put together 
that the Messiah is going to be the suffering servant that will die a sacrificial death on the behalf of other people, paying for their sins. Isaiah 53, we know that that is a messianic chapter, that it applies to Jesus and that all of our iniquities will be laid on him. With his stripes we are healed. We see that. But the Jews at this time didn't understand Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and other passages like that as it pertained to the Messiah. So it says, They understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. So that's why they didn't respond. If you come back to Matthew 20, Jesus says these things, and it leaves the disciples speechless. And it's not because they didn't care. They just didn't know what to do with this information. You're the Messiah. Surely all of this, all, all of your ministry is leading up to you conquering the enemy and so forth. This, this is difficult information for them. You know what's interesting? When you look at what he said, it came to pass exactly the way he said it. It was meant to be taken literally. I find that fascinating because people sometimes, they, they read a verse in the Bible. And, and I get it. Listen, there are metaphors in the Bible. There are some difficult passages in the Bible. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't. But I think oftentimes the reason we don't understand what we're reading is because we're looking for something that's not there. It's plain. It's simple. It's straightforward. It means what it says. If these disciples wanted to understand what he was saying, they just had to believe it. There was no hidden message. There was no code to it. Pretty straightforward. Now watch how impressive this is. Jesus is talking about his own death. You, you tell me. Tell me what city you're going to die in. Tell me, tell me the various circumstances about your demise. How will it happen? What will people be saying? Who will be the perpetrator of the crime? If there's going to be a crime involved at all, do you know that? Now, in the case of Jesus, right, you can look at it and say, well, he had a number of enemies. He was making a certain amount of claims. So, and he knew how the Roman government responds to criminals. So maybe Jesus could make some educated guesses as to his death. But let me point out seven different things just from this passage. Number one, his betrayal. He prophesied that. He knew he would be betrayed. Now, that's difficult to predict from, from a human standpoint. How does he know that? This is evidence of his divinity, at, I believe. At the very least, it's evidence that he is obviously being fed information from God, right? This, there's no way as a man he gets this right. So he knows that he's going to be betrayed. Number two, he knows who the enemies are, the chief priests and the scribes. Number three, he knows the verdict of his mock trial, he's going to be condemned. Number four, he knows the sentence. He's going to be uh, he's going to receive a death sentence. Number five, he knows that there's going to be a prisoner transfer, that they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Number six, that the Gentiles are going to vilely treat him, treat him with with, with great disrespect. And then uh, this leads all the way through his death, of course, to the crucifixion. And then number seven, he's going to rise again. Now, as I said, Jesus maybe could have, as a man, could have made some educated guesses. But to get all of these things right, 
about how he, he would end his earthly time, that's pretty impressive. Furthermore, Jesus was familiar with how Romans treated criminals, that they were crucified. Criminals were often crucified hundreds, thousands of times. This happened. Jesus wasn't a criminal. Right? So you can't just look at the passage and say, well, he made an educated guess as a man. There's more than that to the passage. All right, verse number 20, we step into the next part of our outline. This is the elevation of ministers. It says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. Now, Zebedee's children are James and John, their brothers. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, uh, I did not check this, forgive me, but I believe that the mother's name is Salome, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. So approaching him with, with kindness, honoring titles, that type of thing, and says, may I please ask something of you? And this is just a caring mother, right? I think in modern day terminology, we'd call her a bit of a helicopter mom, right? She's hovering over a situation, wanting to make sure that her boys get the very best. And there's nothing wrong with that. If there's any ladies watching, don't feel bad that you want the best for your children. That's, and certainly if you want the best, for your children, the best thing you can do is approach the Lord with them. There's a very strong practical lesson on motherhood in this. We'll forego any further comment on that and look at verse 21. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now that, those are some high up positions. The right and left hand in the kingdom? Whew, she's asking a lot. This brings up the, the conversation of aspirations. Aspirations. Is it okay for us as Christians to aspire to success? Is it okay for us to seek promotion? And not just in the spiritual sense, but what about even at our jobs? Is it okay for us to want to succeed? You're going to see in this story... Jesus does not condemn Salome, he does not condemn James and John for asking about how to achieve these goals and asking if it's possible for them. That's okay with the Lord. It's interesting that of all the living creatures God made, human beings are the only ones that aspire. The animals don't do this. Animals just survive. Right? They, they're impressive the way God made them. But humankind, we aspire. We seek to look at a thing and make it better and improve it and make it faster and stronger and last longer. And, and success means something to us. Now, let's get this straight. And Jesus is going to put some boundaries on this. He will explain what true success is for the Christian. He will explain how to achieve it. There are boundaries to it. When the reward of success becomes the goal, right? that's all you're after, is the honor that comes with achieving something. Look at me. Look at how great I've done. Then obviously you're pointing in the wrong direction. So there's a right way to go about aspiring to something. We're going to see it. It'll come out as we go through the passage. Verse 22, But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. And they, they didn't. Now, 
They know that they're asking for these high up positions, but they don't understand all of the qualifications and requirements and how much goes into achieving those positions. Verse 22, he says, You know not what you ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, or it says, they said unto him, they say unto him, we are able. Interesting. He says, listen, you want this great honor? It must be earned. I'm not just going to give it to you because you asked. It must be earned. And the way to earn it, one, one requirement is that you're going to have to suffer faithfully some persecution. You're going to have to suffer some afflictions for my sake. And you're going to have to endure those things. Are you able? And they had, as I preached this morning, they had already determined in their heart, they had already decided to take this stand for Christ no matter what it cost them. In verse number 23, Jesus acknowledges this. He saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am, present tense, baptized with. Interesting the way he worded that. So the cup that Jesus is speaking of. We know that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. This cup, it's filled with the wrath of God. It is the punishment that that our sins require. It's filled with suffering, pain, affliction. And of course, we know that Jesus, he said, not my will, thine be done. He took the cup, he drank it. Now, we likewise, as followers of Christ, we, we look at the task ahead of us. We have to preach the gospel. The world's going to get offended. The cross is offensive. Paul talked about that in Galatians 5.12. We can't get around that. You don't want to soften the gospel so that the world likes it. Preach it straight. Preach it out of love, but preach it straight. And when you look at that, the task at hand, if I preach the gospel, there's a, a large portion of the world that is going to be offended at this, and there's a very good chance that I'm going to suffer. <clears throat> you look at that cup and say, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. What are we praying? Father, lead me not into temptation. I don't need any extra trouble. Deliver me from evil. We don't need any extra problems. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If I am going to have to drink this cup, if I, there's some suffering that I cannot avoid, then God, you're worth it. I'm willing. Jesus acknowledges that they will drink that cup. And they did, right? All of the apostles suffered. There was only one that died a natural death. That was John, one of these young men. And even he suffered greatly before he finally died. And then he says, be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Take your Bible. Come to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 50. Luke 12, verse 50. I'm trying to center myself a little bit here. All right, Luke 12 and verse number 50. Jesus says here, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? I believe that the, the cup that he talks about 
it goes right in line with the baptism that he's talking about. Luke 12 is happening a little bit before what we're reading in Matthew now. But he says, I got this baptism and I'm straightened until it's accomplished. So the word straightened, the Greek root behind it is suneko. And that word can be translated afflicted or pressed. You feel the pressure of it. This comes with persecution, suffering, affliction, all of that. So I think we're dealing with one, one and the same thing. It's a baptism of suffering. It's a cup filled with suffering. Jesus, he is feeling the pressure of his imminent death. And that's why I think back in Matthew 20, verse 23, he says the baptism that I am baptized with because he's already feeling the pressure of what he knows he's going to have to do. So he acknowledges that these men are going to suffer and what we can tell that they're going to be faithful about it. But then he finishes Matthew 20, verse 23 by saying, But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Now, I believe we're we're dealing there with Moses and Elijah. That's going to be my best guess as to the two that will stand by the God of the whole earth, to use a biblical phrase, right? Zechariah talks about that. Revelation 11 talks about that. So we're not going to dig deep into who those two are, but I believe those are the two that will occupy those positions. Whoever it is, he's simply saying, guys, I can't give that away. That's reserved for somebody else. Verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. They're upset. Man, you guys called your mom in to try to finagle your way into this great position in the kingdom. Now, why were they so upset by this? Well, take your Bible, come back again to the book of Luke, and this time get chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse number 24. Luke 22, 24. I want you to see, now this is very much the same, I want to say context, it's it's happening... Where it's placed in the book of Luke is interesting. It looks like it's the same conversation that we're reading about in Matthew 20, but it's a bit out of, out of the chronological order that you would find in Matthew and Mark. But look at what it says here, Luke 22, 24. And there was also a strife among them, that's among the disciples, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Do you know what happens in Luke 22? You have the Last Supper, and the next thing after this is Judas running off, and the Garden of Gethsemane takes place. In the middle of these historical moments, the twelve are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Do you see how their aspirations got the better of them? So Jesus, come back to Matthew 20, this is why the 10 had indignation because they've been arguing and now they see James and John bringing their mother into the mix, trying to get that, let's call it that upper hand in this. And they're saying, guys, this is a cheap move. Come on. If you're, if you're going to get those positions, earn them. So what, I, I don't know exactly what the, what the 12 were talking about at this point, you know, what their arguments were. 
for for their individual right to a position. You know, one could say, but I did this and this miracle. Yeah, but I had this many converted. Yeah, but I had this many towns, uh, you know, that I preached in. I don't know how they were comparing themselves among themselves, but whatever the case was, it wasn't a wise thing to do. So Matthew 20, verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. So he's saying, guys, in the, in the Gentile world, when you look at the positions of honor, this is how it operates. The big shots tell the little shots what to do. The big shots don't do the heavy lifting. They tell the little shots to do the heavy lifting. And many times the big shots take advantage of and abuse their positions of authority and become fat and lazy, pride, proudful. I think of Pharaoh and his taskmasters, right? Pharaoh's whipping the, his slaves, the Jews, and making them uh, do all the work, forming more bricks, asking, demanding of them more bricks than they can make in a day. That's how the Gentiles do it. And he says, guys, that's not how we operate. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. Verse 26, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. He says, the way it works in the church that I'm establishing, the way it works within the spiritual kingdom that, where God can rule in, your, in a person's heart, he says, the way to go up is to go down. The way to become great is to become a servant. The way to be the big shot is to be the little shot. So instead of sitting back, barking out orders and making everybody else do all the work, the greatest among Christ's followers are the ones that go out and say, not do this, do this. We go to people and say, what can I do for you? How can I help you? In what way can I serve you? We're looking for people's needs and how we can fill them. Verse 27, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. He says, guys, for, for you, if you want to qualify for these high up positions in the kingdom. Now, these men, right, Matthew 19, they'd already heard because they had forsaken all and followed Christ that they were going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they have that promise already. Jesus is speaking not just to them, but I believe to all of his followers, including us. What does he expect? Let, let me use the proper word there. What is he looking for in his disciples that would earn them a, a privileged position of honor in the millennial kingdom? Number one, endurance under persecution. You got to stay faithful even when it's tough, even when it's not convenient. All right, we saw that. You got to drink that cup. You got to be baptized with that baptism of suffering. And then number two, you got to be a servant. You have to have a servant's heart. If I can, now the illustration I want to give to this, I'm going to say it specifically about preaching, but please understand that this can apply to any 
aspect of life, to any, any form of service, okay? But if I can give you some advice about preaching, because this is a Bible school session, so I believe some of you God has called you to preach. Can I give you a tip on, on how to do it? And I'm telling you, this is a this is more important than writing a good outline and having all the verses memorized and being able to eloquently speak. It, it's so much better. It, here's the advice. When you preach, try to help people. That's it. You get up to preach. You need to be prepared. You need to know the verses. You need to work on how you explain it so that it's clear. There's nothing wrong with eloquence. There's nothing wrong with having a large vocabulary. There's nothing wrong with gaining knowledge and, and building your intellect. That's fine. But if you are not in the pulpit trying to help people, I think you're wasting your time in the pulpit. I've written here, a genuine desire to minister trumps a large vocabulary, a charismatic personality, and an impressive eloquence. It does. I know I've sat through church services where the man in the pulpit could speak very well. And you could tell that he'd been doing it a while. But I really did not get the sense that he was trying to help people. I kind of got the sense that he enjoyed hearing himself speak. And it really wasn't so much about me or anyone else in the church getting help. He wanted us to recognize how good he was at what he was doing. I'll never forget one night, I had just been, Christina and I had just been saved a few months. And there was another gentleman in the church there with us. I'll not give his name, but he, uh, he was getting his life back on track and trying to get things right with God and and uh, Brother Freddie, our pastor at the time, gave this man a chance to preach. Now, this gentleman, he was a police officer. He was in his late 20s. Uh, so he, he was used to being a man of authority. And he was a little, no, no, not a little. He was a lot into himself. Now, when he come to church, he would dress casually. Not, not flippantly, but casually. And this Sunday night, when it was his turn to preach... He burst through the back doors of that church. I mean, and I say burst, boom, he knocked them open. And he has this bright white suit on, right? I mean, full white pants, white coat, white shirt, fancy tie. And he comes in with a briefcase. I mean, his chest held high. <laughs> I must admit, he was quite a large man, so I didn't want to laugh too hard because he could have thumped me, but I thought, man. What happened to him? And, you know, he put his briefcase down in the front uh, in the front pew and opened it up, took his Bible out, and he's, you know, holding the Bible under his arm, super serious, and he gets in the pulpit, and boy, he just lets it... I, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that before or since where somebody preached purely for the recognition of preaching. None of that message was meant to help anybody. I only point that story out to say that people can tell when you're trying to help, generally speaking. Now, sometimes your intentions will be misinterpreted, but generally speaking, people can tell if you want to help. 
And that's the attitude you got to have, whether they see that or not. You get up and you're trying to help, there's a good chance you'll have that opportunity to do that. Verse 28, Jesus will acknowledge that not only is that the standard by which he judges his servants, that's what he requires and wants from them, but that's the standard by which he lived. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, towards the end of his life, gets down this famous story from John 13. After he eats supper with them, takes a towel, wraps it around himself, and washes the disciples' feet. Might I remind you, Judas was one of them. And he knew in just a few minutes, Judas will be the one who runs out of the room to betray him. He even washed his feet. He came not to be ministered unto. As the king of kings, he could have come and shown off his power. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He could have, he could have done any number of things to get the people to bow down in awe of him. But instead, he came to minister. He came and said, "What?" and you're going to see it in just a minute. What wilt thou that I do for you? How can I help? How can I help? I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. A ransom, let me give you the definition of it, is money or a price paid for the redemption or the release of a prisoner or a slave. Essentially, it's what it cost to buy somebody's freedom. What a perfect word to use as it pertains to you and I as slaves to our sinful nature, under prisoners to our sin, and, and facing an eternal prison in the lake of fire, never being allowed to leave. A ransom had to be paid. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus, that's why he had to die. It wasn't enough for him to come and just teach. It wasn't enough for him to come and prophesy or do miracles. He had to come and give himself as a ransom, a payment for our redemption so that we could go free. Let me say something quickly about the end of this verse. Some people have found issue with it to give his life a ransom for many. They see this as support for the Calvinistic teaching of limited atonement, which is to say Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect. See, since God had already chosen that certain people wouldn't be going to heaven, wouldn't be saved, why die for them since they're going to be lost anyway? So that's kind of where this limited atonement idea is generated from. And then they look at this and they say, you see, he was a ransom for many, but not all. Well, hold your Bible here. Come to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to see how the scripture interprets the scripture. 1 Timothy 2. Let's get verse number 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
So you can see in the context here. Look at verse 2. Uh, I'm sorry, look at verse 4. Verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved? The all men in the passage, we're dealing with kings and those in authority. We're not dealing with the body of Christ. The all that we're talking about refers to all of mankind. It, it can't just be the some unconditionally elected group. That won't work with this context. God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. That's mankind. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. So this context is abundantly clear as to who the ransom was paid for. It was paid on the behalf of any sinner. Any sinner. So what do we do with this phrase, many? He was a ransom for many. This isn't the only time in the Bible we find language like this. This is slightly poetic in the way that it's written, but, and it's true, it's a simple explanation, but it's a true explanation. How many people, if you wanted to quantify the group all, is it a few or is it many? There's many people in the group of all. So to say he, he's a ransom for many, yes, there are many sinners included in the payment that was made. And it was aimed at many people. So many and all work well together, right? They're not exclusive from each other. Come back to Matthew 20. I hope that part is clear. Let me know if, if that makes, if, if it doesn't make sense, I'll try to explain it again if I need to. Matthew 20, verse 29, it says, And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. I'll just mention quickly about Jericho. Jericho had fluid borders, and the borders were continuously changing. So that's why in one gospel account, he's coming into Jericho. The next gospel account, he's going out of Jericho. It depends on which on, on what set of city plans you were looking at at the time. So just in case you ever hear somebody bring up a, a point of contention here, there, there's no mistakes or contradictions to this. Jericho's borders were all over the place at this time. And they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, in Mark chapter 10, I recently preached um, from Mark chapter 10 about blind Bartimaeus, preached about mercy. Uh, it's the same story as what we're reading now in Matthew 20. But as is common, right, we, we find that these two gospels, Matthew and Mark, they're not contradicting each other, but they are supplementing one another. So Matthew gives us uh, a, some information that deals with the quantity. There were two men there. And then Mark is going to focus in and give us some personal information about one of the beggars, one of the blind men that got help. We got his name, he's Bartimaeus, and so forth. So it's the same story. There's no problems with it. We just have some additional information here. So there's two men, and they cry out, O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now the phrase son of David, that is a messianic title. And it was well known to the Jews. You can find It, was, it came from the book of Psalms. You find promises about the Messiah being linked directly to the son of David. So to call someone this is to call him the Messiah. Verse 31, And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. 
Why should they hold their peace? Isn't it interesting that Jesus just taught? Now, I don't know if the multitude was there when he taught the disciples about the proper way to be a minister, right? To be a servant, to have that servant's heart. But isn't it interesting? He just taught on it, and now the multitude is making the exact, or let's say making a mistake in this area. This multitude is about to go towards Jerusalem with Jesus and lay down the palm branches and worship him and Hosanna to the son of David and make a big deal out of the king coming into the town. But let's not forget what the king came to do. He came to minister to people. Sometimes we can get so caught up with, you know, let's put together a great church service and, and I'm all for that, right? Putting down the palm branches and and bringing Jesus into the city and making a big deal of it, great. I, I have no problems with that. But let's not forget to help those people there by the wayside that are crying out for somebody to have compassion on them. It says in verse 31 in the middle, but they cried the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, what will ye that I shall do unto you? Isn't that something? Now, as I mentioned in that sermon I preached not too long ago, this question had eluded me for quite some time as to why, why would Jesus ask this? But it, it works nicely, doesn't it, with what we just learned. The Gentile overlords, the, 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 the rulers amongst the Gentiles, they look at the public and say, what can you do for me? Jesus, on the other hand, says, what can I do for you? What will ye that I shall do unto you? Now, most beggars, they're just asking for food or money or something of that nature. I think Jesus is giving this man a chance to show that he's, he's looking for something more than just the average beggar's request. Say, but is, if Jesus is God, if he is divine, doesn't he already know? Why make the sinner admit it out loud? You know, I think part of the reason for this, Jesus is teaching the entire multitude a lesson. I don't think this is just for Bartimaeus' sake. I think everybody needs to hear this happen. It's not just, hey, ask me for money, then I'll give it to you. He's, he, Jesus isn't making a show of it. He's wanting them to hear that this man has faith that the Messiah can do more than just hand him a piece of bread or a piece of money. Furthermore, this beggar, this blind man is going to learn that I can pour out my heart to God. I can pour out my heart to the Messiah and the Messiah cares. He's not going to chew me out or to use the biblical word, upbraid me because I make the request. Do you remember that word from James chapter 1, verse 5? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Because sometimes we get, about, we get a little shy about going to the Lord with our request because maybe we want to ask him for something big and we start to think, yeah, but I'm not worthy of that. And I think that Jesus is, is exposing this and having it done out in the open so that we learn we can bring these big requests and Jesus, he, he takes time to listen to that. He's not going to chew you out. He's not going to be upset that you asked. 
Verse 33, they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Now, of course, they mean physically. I'm, I'm almost certain that something spiritual happened as well. Their spiritual eyes were also opened. It says in verse 34, So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. So here is this throng, this large multitude, pressing towards Jerusalem. And these two blind men are now part of that crowd. So you can imagine the, let's call it the frenzy of the crowd. These people are so excited. The multitude was already prepped and ready to go to make a big deal out of Jesus coming into the town. He's heading to Jerusalem. It's going to be a big deal. The feast of the Passover is coming up. So everybody's going to be there. What's he going to do next? Every time Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, something pretty big happens. And now these two, they just, the multitude saw this wonderful miracle of blind people receiving sight. Man, they are excited. And that sets the stage for chapter 21. Let me give you the outline here. Chapter 21 breaks into five parts. We're obviously not going to get through all of them, but we will cover a little bit. Verses 1 to 11, the triumphal entry. We call it the triumphal entry. That's a very common title for this uh, passage. Verses 12 to 16, the temple cleansing. A temple cleansing. Jesus is going to run out the money changers. Uh, verses 17 to 22, tree cursed. We're going to read about that fig tree being cursed. Verses 23 to 32, uh, Jesus is going to be asked about his authority, his teaching authority. Who gave you this authority? And then the chapter ends with a parable, verses 33 to 46, and I have named it taking the vineyard because I needed a word that started with the letter T. So taking the vineyard, but we'll take a longer look at that, no doubt, uh, on Tuesday. All right, so let's, let's dig into chapter 21 and make a little bit of headway. Verse 1, it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples. Now, for the geography... Uh, of, of these places. I'll let you look in the back of your Bible. Most, of the, most Bibles, uh, especially a study Bible, will have a set of maps in the back, and you'll be able to see Jericho. Uh, it was just west of the Jordan River. Right? If you look at the Dead Sea and go up a little bit, just west of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, northwest there, it's, you'll see Jericho. And then Bethphage, Mount of Olives, very close to Jerusalem. So Jesus, when he gets there, he sends two of his disciples, saying unto them, verse 2, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Uh, so the little baby donkey. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now, I've actually heard somebody, it was a Muslim man, that said Jesus was a thief. Now his point was the biblical Jesus is a thief. And then he pointed to this story because he told his disciples to go and steal these donkeys. And if anybody says anything, just tell them that I need them and on you go. So he's, you know, running a donkey smuggling business or something. Which is, this is obviously not what's going on. There's, there's no... No wrongdoing 
happening because in Mark chapter 11 and verse 6, you read that the people who are watching over these animals, they saw what the disciples were doing. And they asked him, what, what, what's going on? And the disciples did exactly as Jesus said. They responded, the Lord hath need of them. And the Bible says that the men that were watching the animals said, okay, you can take them. They allowed it to happen. So there was, there's, that's not stealing. When, when the owners or the managers of those animals or those possessions allow the other people to take it, that's not stealing. I, I think it is very safe to assume that Jesus all, had already arranged this deal. This was a prearranged deal. The last time he was in Jerusalem, he probably set this up and said, listen, I'll be coming back. I'm going to need to borrow a, a couple donkeys, maybe a, a mother and it's cold. Would, can you help me out? I think that's a, a, a fair enough assumption for how this went. Now, I'm not going to preach this passage to you, although I will point it out. I've heard some excellent sermons come from this. It's a bit of a topical sermon because you can just use the, the donkey, the wild ass in the Bible, but you can go through the Bible and read what it has to say about the donkey but especially in this passage, the Lord has need of him. That donkey, as we read in the King James, that ass, is, he is a perfect picture of a lost man. He's rebellious. He wanders off in the wilderness. He won't work for the master. He works whenever he wants to work. That's, there's a lot of... When you read in Exodus, the donkey, a donkey can only be redeemed by the blood of a lamb. No, no, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm saying that wrong. A donkey, that's right. A donkey, if it's not redeemed, has to have its neck broken. And I'm going to have to double check on that lamb. I believe it's a lamb. Oh, I'm very tempted to check now. Wait just a second. I'm going to peek over there. I told you I wasn't going to preach it. Now I'm giving you all the verses for it. So you can put this sermon together. Uh, you watch it. I won't be able to find it now that I've mentioned it. Ah, there it is. Nope, that's not it. Let me know if one of you know or knows where that cross-reference is about the ass being redeemed, and if it can't, then you break its neck. One of you that have you have access to your Bible app, you can find that for me real quick and put it into the comment section. Anyway, let's not take any more time on that. But you see the point I'm trying to make that you could preach a very nice sermon using the, the donkey as a picture of a lost man and then looking at how Jesus uh, uses the donkey in this passage. So the Lord has need of him. He sends the disciples to go get the donkey, loose him, and bring him to me. So it's our job as soul winners to bring the people to Christ and then once those donkeys get there, the Lord uses them. Uh, and these donkeys exalt him, and lift him up as he rides into town. So it, as I say, great stuff you could preach from there. But verse number four, Matthew 21, verse four, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets saying, interesting, all this was done to fulfill a prophecy. Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem all the same, right? 
But Jesus was aware that he had a prophetic responsibility. That Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says that the king would come riding into town on a donkey. So the Lord set this whole thing up so that Zechariah 9 verse 9 could be fulfilled. And we're going to talk more about that prophecy in a moment. But, but bear in mind, as Jesus rides in, the people are going to go crazy. They're loving this. Oh man, Hosanna to the son of David. This is great. Here he comes, our king. But his kingdom didn't get established. So you know what happens? As a result of this, People can look back at what he did and they can't find fault in him. He can honestly say, I did everything I could to show you who I truly was. If you would have been checking the scriptures, you would have known that I was fulfilling the prophecies, every single one of them, the law and the prophets, all of it. So you, nobody can can point at Jesus and say, if you only would have done this one as well, if you would have fulfilled this, he, he made sure to fulfill them all. Had they been paying attention, the Jews as a, as a corporate group, if they would have been watching, they would have seen it. Did somebody get it? Exodus 13, 13. Ah, I was in Exodus 12. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the help. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I want. Exodus 13. I knew. I, I knew it was near there. I obviously didn't know it was right there. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. I was right. So if you want to redeem the donkey, you got to give up a lamb. And if thou wilt redeem it, then thou if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. So if the lost man doesn't get saved, he has to die. Right? Second death. But if he wants to get saved, he can only be redeemed with a lamb. Tremendous. Okay. So, but thank you for the help. Gary, Tanya, appreciate that. Matthew 21, verse 5. Tell ye the daughter... Now, he's quoting from Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, Tell ye the daughter of Sion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass, the baby, the baby donkey. Um, can I ask you to hold your place here? Get It's actually just a few pages back. Zechariah 9. Look with me at Zechariah 9 and verse 9. I want you to compare. Can you? Let's do this a little bit here. You do this with your pages so that you can see both sides of it here. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And, and compare it with what we have in Matthew 21. We read in Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Look at Matthew 21. Thy king cometh unto thee. It skips over just and having salvation and goes right to meek, which in Zechariah the word is translated as lowly, which is perfectly fine. That's another way to say meek. Riding, I'm back in Zechariah, riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So notice the omission in Matthew 21 of the phrase just and having salvation. What are we to make of that? I, th I think the Holy Spirit, who is the author of scripture, I, I believe that he's, 
superintending how the Bible is written. And as he's doing that, he says, you know what? It's more appropriate if we take that phrase out of Matthew because the Jews were not going to receive their Messiah. Now, bear in mind, Matthew is writing this after the fact. So he knows how the story has played out as far as the crucifixion and the Jews' rejection. And Jesus was not able to offer that corporate salvation to the nation of Israel. Isn't that interesting? But, but while you're in Zechariah, look at the context. Look at verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle uh, bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. You, you see how the Jews would have read this and said, when the king enters into the city, just having salvation, lowly, riding upon a donkey, then he's going to conquer the enemy and reign over the world. In their minds, that's what's going to happen. They don't see the part about suffer, die, crucify. They don't see that part. All right, so come back to Matthew 21. So Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Verse 6, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and set him thereon. Now some people have raised issue with the wording here. Set him thereon. Well, there's two animals. How can he be on both? I one time I, somebody brought this up to me. He was being a bit of a jerk about it, so I answered the fool according to his folly. Um, he said, "How could you be riding on both animals at one time?" And I said, "Man, this is how you treat a king." I said, "He is sitting on one animal that's taller because it's the mother, and the other animal is his footstool, and they ride into town like that." Which I seriously doubt that that is what happened, but. Like I said, I was, I was answering the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Guys, the, the mother and the foal, I'm assuming, were tied together. I think that's a fair assumption. Even if they weren't, the mother and the foal, the clothes go on both animals. Jesus is obviously going to be riding on one of the animals, probably the larger one. But it's a package deal. That's all. So there's, there's really nothing to fuss over in this verse. To say they set him there on, yes, on, if you look at both animals and the clothing as one package deal, which it was, then he is set on that. Verse 8, And a, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. So they're putting their clothes, taking down palm branches, which, by the way, if you read Second Chronicles chapter 28, you find out that Jericho is also known as a city of palm trees. So as you're coming out of Jericho down towards Jerusalem, there's many, many palm trees, and these palms would have been easily accessible. And uh, what, what they do is bind them into big sheaves, right? And it was part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're reading the Feast of Passover, just so that you understand it's a different time. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would bind these palm branches together and use them as part of the ceremony. So it was very familiar to the crowd when you're wanting to recognize a, some sort of dignitary, make a big deal of them, you use the palm branches. You, go, you, you make this sort of a gesture. 
Uh, can I ask you to flip over with me to 1 Kings chapter 1? This is actually the attendance code for tonight. Uh, let me put it up there for you. 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to read just a, a few verses. 1 Kings 1. <clears throat> All right, 1 Kings chapter 1. This is when uh, Solomon is being made king. 1 Kings 1, let's begin reading in verse 38. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon, which is very close to Jerusalem. And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save King Solomon. This is what you did when you inaugurated a new king. This is typical behavior. Make a big fuss. Verse 40, And all the people came, out, or came up after him, and the people piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth rent with the sound of them. I mean, the earth is shaking because they're making so much noise. So 1 Kings 1 verse 40, that's your attendance code for tonight. Um, that is how Solomon was brought into Jerusalem and, and introduced as the king. Jesus, not quite the same uh, ruckus is, is happening, but it's in the same spirit thereof. Matthew 21, let's just finish this uh, next few verses. We'll be done for the night. Verse 8, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now, verse 11, it's interesting. When they say this is Jesus, the prophet, some have suggested that the multitude was answering that Jesus was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that the prophet like unto Moses. I don't really see that this verse or this passage in relation to that. Uh, they, they call him the prophet of Nazareth, not the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. So I, I think that's a bit of a stretch to, to put that into, into that statement. The multitude is just asking, what's the fuss about? Who is this big shot? They have heard people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna by itself is a messianic reference, and I'm going to show you a verse for that just now. Hosanna to the son of David, also a messianic reference. So the multitude wants to know one multitude from another, right? You guys are crying this out. Who is it specifically that you think the Messiah is? And they then name him Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So now that he's in Jerusalem, the, the city dwellers know what the fuss is all about. So all focus now will be shifted to Jesus. Let me just give you a couple interesting tidbits about that word Hosanna. Hosanna is an expression of praise. It doesn't have a, an exact meaning. There's not one word that you can translate it as. Um, Hosanna, as you read it there, is just a transliteration, actually. But one last place to turn to, Psalm 118. Look with me at verse number 25, because the word Hosanna actually comes from that. Uh, how many of you know this word? 
and I hope I'm saying it correctly, ululation, ululation. If I, if I'm, I think I'm saying that correct, ululation. Now, an ululation is an expression of joy or sometimes grief. You can also ululate or uulate, maybe. Um, if you're having, yes, by a heart seer. You're very heart sore over something, so there's grief. But when you want to express that, sometimes you can put a, a word or a sound to it. I cannot even duplicate what. I often heard in Malawi and I hear it here as well. So I actually found somebody doing it online. I'm going to play it for you now. Let me know if you can hear this. This is ululation. All right, so as far as I can tell, that that's, you know, there's, there's slight differences maybe from what you heard in, or what I heard in Malawi, what you hear uh, here in South Africa as well. But uh, Muslims do it quite a bit as well. They do it for different reasons, but the that ululation. If you're in Israel, you wouldn't maybe chant like that or make that sort of sound. If you're excited and you want to express that, you would say Hosanna. Hosanna was actually a combination of two Hebrew words that that came from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee. Yes, I'm sorry. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. So the, when you take the phrase, save now, and then I beseech thee, okay, put those two together, and it comes out as Hosanna. Hosanna. And then you can look at verse 26. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord, which Jerusalem is where the house of the Lord was. So you can see how saying Hosanna, that would come from verse 25. Save now, I beg you, I beseech you. That's Hosanna. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, reference to the Messiah. So saying Hosanna like this, it is an ululation of sorts. It's an expression of praise, but specifically reserved for the Messiah. All right, so that's all I got for you tonight. We're going to stop there. If you guys have any questions, you can, as always, feel free to contact me personally. If you want to slip them in just uh, quickly while I'm praying, I will try to deal with them if I see them in time. But otherwise, I appreciate you folks tuning in. Lord, thank you for this evening that we're able to go through these scriptures and think about these lessons that you've taught us. And I, I pray specifically tonight about that servant's heart. God, help us to be okay with being small. Lord, at the end of the day, it's, it's not about us. We should be able to say, just like you did, we came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Thank you for laying down your life as the ransom, the payment that set us free. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. We were trapped in the prison of our sins. Thank you for the freedom that you purchased. Help us this week, Lord, as we go about about our daily duties, never to lose sight of what you've done for us and what we now need to do for you. Help us to hear the cry of the multitudes in need of compassion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your help tonight, for this entire day. Have your hand on every single student, every member, every person that tuned in. Might they walk away from this broadcast now better than how they came. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, folks, you have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, you'll see me Tuesday night.